Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Today we're going to talk about so-called wokeness. And I have to be honest with you, I have really struggled with how to introduce this topic, largely because the dialogue around it has become so poisoned. Depending on the person, that word might signify a sensitivity to and a moral campaign to remedy systemic injustice, or a malicious Marxist plot to end America. But as the philosopher Susan Neiman rightly points out, the fact that woke has become a favorite slur among right-wing politicians should not prevent the rest of us from examining it. Because the frothiness of the culture war has obscured a very complex and powerful ideology, one which has produced a host of cultural phenomena that are shaping crucial aspects of our politics and policy from classrooms to boardrooms and virtually everywhere in between. It has informed countless social justice initiatives, cancellation campaigns, sensitivity screeners, and DEI programs. It has very subtly transposed the liberal anthem of equality into a chant of equity. It has, at times, advanced a worldview in which there are only oppressors and victims, and even advocated a modern version of racial segregation in the name of something called progressive separatism. And over the last couple of years, the more hours I've spent quietly researching what the hell is going on, asking whether this is indeed liberalism, the more I've noticed most critics have resorted to caricature, and the more urgency I have felt to do it justice on this podcast. All this is to say that we have desperately needed a level-headed and comprehensive accounting of the identitarianism ascendant on the left, one that actually takes these ideas seriously that respects the people who hold them and articulates their inherent logic. Thankfully for many of us, my guest for this two-part series, with whom many of you will already be familiar, has written an outstanding book in which he does precisely that and offers us a better term of art, the identity synthesis, that captures the nature and complexity of what's happening. Yasha Monk is a liberal German-American political scientist and a professor of the practice of international affairs at Johns Hopkins University, where he holds appointments in both the School of Advanced International Studies and the SNF Agora Institute. He is a contributing editor at The Atlantic, a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and the founder of Persuasion. He is also the host of an excellent podcast called The Good Fight. The book is called The Identity Trap, a story of power and ideas in our time. And I mean it when I say that if you read one book this year, let this be it. As much as I enjoyed this talk with Yasha, we cover only a small portion of the material that he very carefully and generously lays out in the book. This episode is part one of our conversation in which we begin by discussing why each of us approached this topic in the first place. We talk about why he calls the identity synthesis a trap, and we spend a really good amount of time tracing its philosophical origins. In part two, we dive further into identity and what happened on Tumblr that spread to the rest of the internet and ultimately to mainstream journalism, the with us or against us mentality, infighting within progressive institutions, cancel culture, distrust in experts, whether the identity synthesis is compatible with liberalism, and how to deal with backlash and have constructive conversations about it. Finally, I want to say thank you for your trust. One guiding ethos of this podcast is defending liberal democracy and confronting illiberalism. And it is this principled commitment that demands we face influential ideologies head on, regardless of where on the partisan spectrum they happen to lie. 
Many of you have said this show helps you make sense of a rapidly transforming world. And I hope, sincerely, that today's discussion will be no exception. Yasha Munk, welcome to Politicology. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to this. So I have uh, long been a fan of your writing in The Atlantic and many of the excellent conversations you've had on the Good Fight podcast. And I, I have to say, it's a it's a model for how to have genuine disagreements in a really, really thoughtful way. So um, just right off the bat, I want to thank you for the work you're doing there because uh, I think the world needs more of it. So, so well done. Um, I think maybe we should begin... Uh, with a little bit of your political and intellectual background, um, your recent area of focus prior to the one we are going to dive into today, and what motivated you to study populism and liberal democracies in the first place? Yeah, so, you know, I was a graduate student at Harvard in political science uh, about 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, when you start learning about comparative politics, comparing the political systems of different countries around the world, at the time, what you were taught was, broadly speaking, that it's really hard to establish a democracy. Uh, there's lots of poorer countries that don't have much of a democratic tradition that try to establish a democracy and it goes wrong and they become dictatorships again. Um, there's some rich countries like Saudi Arabia that might never become democracies. Um, but once you are relatively affluent, you've had a number of changes of government for free and fair elections, you really don't have to worry about the future of your system. You know, countries like the United States and Germany, where I'm from and so on, they were supposed to really be consolidated democracies. Whatever happens 25, 50 years from now, we can be pretty sure they're going to be democratic. And as I was being taught this, I was paying attention to politics in Europe, and I saw a lot of these right-wing populist figures um, come to have a larger and larger share in the elections there. People like Jörg Haider in Austria, uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen at the time, and since his daughter Marine Le Pen, and and, and many others. Um, and some of the assumptions that the field still seemed to have about why it is that democracy was supposed to be the only game in town just, just didn't quite seem to be uh, true. And so with a friend, we, we started looking at some opinion poll research about how satisfied are people with democracy? How open are they to authoritarian alternatives to democracy? Do they think it's really important to live in a democracy or not? And all of those were giving us really big red flags. And so you know, I like to say that I'm a sort of democracy crisis hipster. I, I, I worried about the crisis of democracy before it was cool and really started to be concerned about it even before Donald Trump and all of that other stuff. Before we dive in here, there's some, this is some important table setting, I think, because this is, uh, this is such a controversial topic. Um, it's, it's rather fraught. I think it's not well understood. Um, so if you'll allow me, I'm going to retrace my path to this topic um, and why we're having this conversation in the first place. And then I'd love to hear about how you uh, are thinking about approaching it. Um, I will remind uh, listeners, some some new listeners may not know this, but my original reason for launching the campaign against Trump via the Lincoln Project in 2020 was at its core about my grave concerns about how the Republican Party had given itself over to a feverish right-wing authoritarianism and and had fully embraced a man who proudly embodied the, the very antithesis of, of, of Lincoln's party, of Lincoln's moral call to action at his Cooper Union speech, which, of course, then catapulted the Republican Party to prominence in the first place. And that is, in his words, to have faith that right makes might. Uh, in other words, that there are moral truths and that it is our duty to articulate them and to create a country that reflects them. And I believed then, and I do today, that, that the illiberalism Trump represents 
and which has now, I think, spread like a cancer to a controlling portion of the Republican electorate, was worth whatever social and professional consequences it would cost me to fight. And uh, and and it did. And I found a, a group of Americans who were willing to do the same. And so during the 2020 campaign, this podcast was designed to create a permission structure for Republican voters to have the integrity to put country over party or as my former client Carly Fiorina put it, to vote against Donald Trump, not despite her conservative principles, but because of them. And then after the insurrection on January 6th, one major reason I chose to continue was that our victory in 2020 was obviously nowhere near big enough to uh, eradicate that cancer. It was more like a live to fight another day moment. And that if we were actually going to locate and fix the cracks in our democracy, uh, in addition to you know discussing electoral strategy, as we do every week, and the short-term imperative of electing Democrats to keep right-wing authoritarians away from the levers of power, we desperately needed to do better to understand the disease of which Trump is a symptom, to expand what we think of as politics, to open the aperture, to examine the social forces that sustain his following, and to have much deeper conversations about what we're really fighting each other about. And so with the context of that recent history, and you know we're now three plus years out from the 2020 election, one thing has stood out to me, which is that the same principles of liberalism uh, are now also being subverted by a very specific but very badly understood strain of illiberalism on the left. And that is actually fueling the reactionaries on the right. And so, you know, privately, I started doing my own research to understand how we got here, for example, with the fight over critical race theory and where it came from and how it spread and, you know, whether it was truly, quote unquote, Marxist at its core, as a lot of Republicans have claimed. And after spending a lot of time with this material, I realized that very few people even the Democrats in my circle truly understood it. And the term, you know, the term woke has now become a political weapon, which understandably has had a stifling effect on any sincere discussion of the of the serious ideas embedded in the ideology, uh, which you are calling the identity synthesis. And so, as I mentioned, um, you know, when you reached out to me, I've been waiting for someone to write a book for liberals, this book uh, that takes the ideas seriously and what you have produced is the best thing I have seen so far because it is cogent and rigorous and illuminating. And, uh, and I found myself um, uh, filling in a lot of the gaps that were left in my own sort of uh, amateur research here. So broadly speaking, um, how would you characterize the, the current political moment in America and what ultimately made you decide to write this book in, you know, in light of the five alarm fire on the right? And how were you thinking about, for example, the idea that writing critically about the left might help the right? Well, first of all, thank you so much for, for, for those kind words. I mean, a lot to me because that was a goal that I had in writing this book, to elevate the level of discussion and discourse about this, to actually understand these ideas. My argument, by the way, is that, as you know, that this is not a form of cultural Marxism, but that's a misunderstanding of the ideology, but it is a genuinely new ideology. It is not the same ideas that have always been part, for example, of a black political tradition in the United States, uh, in people like Frederick Douglass or the civil rights movement. It is, in fact, uh, written and conceived in direct opposition, in explicit opposition to many of those ideas. Uh, and yet we now have 
really tremendous influence in many universities and mainstream institutions. And so I think, um, you know, it's an important thing to actually understand those ideas, to critically evaluate them, to see what's valuable in them, but also to see where perhaps they they go wrong. And that's what I'm trying to to do in the identity trap. Um, now, um, you know, I, I think that the biggest threat in this moment is and continues to be the right-wing populism of Donald Trump and other parts of the MAGA movement, which is not just an American phenomenon. We see uh, similar authoritarian populists around the world, um, people like Narendra Modi in India, or Recep Erdogan in Turkey, Viktor Orban in Hungary, um, the government in Poland, which is standing for re-election in the next few weeks and a really important test for democracy in Europe. Um, and, and I continue to be very, very worried and exercised uh, about them. At the same time, I also think that, uh, you know, like you, the reason to oppose these movements is a commitment to the basic principles of liberal democracy, a commitment to a country that is built on political equality, on individual freedom, on collective self-determination, and a vision of a country in which we have something to look forward to, in which we can build a deeply diverse, thriving democracy in which we recognize and fight against injustices, but in which we hope that uh, 10 or 25 or 100 years from now, how we treat each other, how we see each other, the extent to which we can communicate with each other is going to depend less rather than more on the kinds of groups in which we're born, in which we're going to have more civic friendship, um, and more actual friendship, uh, more contact, more cultural exchange between different kinds of groups. And so the reason why I chose to focus on this new ideology uh, on my part of the political spectrum among many of my friends and colleagues is in part because I really think that it is undermining those values. Um, but this is not a matter of people uh, you know, going too far in the right direction. It is actually going in the wrong direction. When it comes, for example, to putting um, you know, forms of mutual cultural exchange under a general pole of suspicion because of understandable but, but misdirected fears about uh, what's called cultural appropriation. Um, uh, and so I think it's important in itself because I care about the kind of spaces in which this ideology is taking over, and I don't think it's making those spaces more productive, more healthy, um, more truthful. But I also think that this is not in opposition to, to, to fighting Donald Trump. You know, I've been warning and writing about Donald Trump for 10 years. I've written two books about populism. I uh, have, you know, well over 100 podcast episodes mostly talking about the threat of his ideology. I've written countless articles in the Slate and then in the Atlantic and in the New York Times and in other places warning about this stuff. And I could write another article tomorrow that tells people how much Donald Trump sucks and it would probably be most read. And I still do that sometimes. But clearly we haven't convinced enough people by doing that. One more article explaining that Trump is a bad guy is not going to actually change this. What will change this political moment is if Democrats are able to win a commanding majority if they're able to get so much into a vision that is appealing to a broad range of Americans that the Republican Party has to reform itself or face electoral uh, uh, annihilation. Um, and to do that, we perhaps have to look in the mirror. If after 10 years, we still haven't been able to build that broad majority. Perhaps we have to be a little bit self-critical about what we need to do to reach more of our compatriots. And I think ideas that basically... Um, in certain ways, divide the country up between whites and so-called people of color that think that uh, we're stuck in this, uh, you know, eternal conflict between identity groups and we don't have an optimistic vision 
for how to recognize injustices, but actually inspire people to have more genuine solidarity with each other um, are part of a reason for that. So in electoral terms, I think uh, these two things are very different intellectually, but in electoral terms, one is the yin to the other's yang. Um, the hold that some of these ideas have over many of our institutions and over parts of Washington, D.C. Uh, uh, actually is part of what gives Donald Trump that scary and very real chance of winning re-election to the White House in 2024. I'm very looking forward to parsing all of this with you. So I think we should begin with why you use the term trap in the first place. Yeah, so, um, you know, a trap is something that has a lure, right? Um, there's a piece of cheese or something in a mousetrap, for example, right? It has something that draws you in. There's a promise that attracts you to the trap. Um, and I think in the case of the identity synthesis and the identity trap, um, there's this promise to say, hey, we are the ones who can truly recognize the injustices that still pervade our society. And we are the ones who most radically will fight against these injustices, not in a reformist way, not by making gradual improvements, but by really ripping up everything that is foul in our system and starting from scratch. And that is attractive, right? That is a lure. I, I, I feel that attraction because I am as committed and convinced and anti-racist and as committed and convinced an opponent of these forms of discrimination and injustice as anybody else. Um, the problem is that it nevertheless is uh, a trap, but ultimately the people who are lured into this are not going to be able to accomplish their goals. And there's a few reasons for that. It is political trap in the ways we've been talking about and that it actually ends up helping uh, uh, the far right. Um, it sets up our institutions in, in ways that are not going to help to build a more tolerant society. To give one example, uh, you know, many of the most elite private schools in the country now have teachers come into first, second grade classrooms and tell people, if you're uh, black, you go over there. If you're Latino, you go over there. If you're Asian American, you go over there. And if you're white, by the way, you go uh, you know, to that fourth classroom to be among other white people. Um, and the, the goal of that is to empower people to uh, fight against injustice or to encourage the white group to recognize and disclaim the white privilege. But when you tell six and seven and eight-year-olds that the most important thing about you is your race, that that is your true peer group, that is the group in which you will truly feel safe and everybody else is a kind of threat to you. You are not helping us overcome the zero-sum politics that the right exploits, you're actually helping to perpetuate it. And I'm particularly disturbed by what's going to happen to that white group because I know from history and social psychology that people can self-identify in all kinds of ways. But once they say, hey, I identify along these lines, these are the members of my in-group, they have a very, very, very strong tendency to favor the members of that in-group over anybody who's outside of it. So I'm not worried that those white kids are going to feel uncomfortable for an hour. I think feeling uncomfortable in your education is fine sometimes. If they feel uncomfortable, I, I don't care that much. But I worry that rather than learning, you know, when we're being encouraged to embrace race, one of the most uh, famous educational consultants in us called Embrace Race, when they're being encouraged to own the whiteness, to identify with their European heritage, the goal is to make them anti-racist activists. I think it's much more likely to turn them into white supremacists. So I think this is a political trap in all kinds of ways, but it's also a personal trap. It's a personal trap because the promise of this ideology, and I see it 
very strongly in my, in my really thoughtful students um, uh, uh, is that they've been told if you want recognition and visibility and respect in society, which we all seek, the way to do that is to really define yourself by the particular intersection of identities you have. And of course, to have that form of uh, visibility, that form of uh, respect, we have to not discriminate. We have to not look down on people. We have to not stereotype. We have to um, recognize uh, members of all groups as as, as, as our fellow citizens who, who are worthy of respect and dignity. But when you encourage people to really define by the particular groups to which they belong in that way, I think you're making a false promise because ultimately the form of recognition that virtually everybody seeks is of our individual tastes and uh, uh, personality and the way we speak and the way we joke and the things we care about. And those are never defined merely or predominantly by the group to which we belong. Um, you know, probably if you have a, a sibling, you share many of those kind of identity attributes with your sibling. Perhaps not all of them, but, but many, perhaps all, right? But your sibling is not you, right? To be recognized in the world, you want to be recognized as who you are rather than who your sibling is. And so I worry that this is a personal trap as well. And so why the, why the metaphor of the identity trap? Because there's a new set of ideas about identity, but it's really alluring, but makes a big promise. Smart people, good people, well-intentioned people can fall into it, but ultimately it's a trap for you and for me and for them and for all of us. Let's spend a little time on background here. Because I think many people coming to this conversation may think that this is a phenomenon that started in 2020 or in the in the, in the aftermath of the summer of 2020 specifically. Uh, but the reality is this: um, the identity synthesis has a long, long history, a long lead up to the current moment. And I think this was one of the most helpful things to me, going back all the way to Foucault, uh, in understanding the philosophical underpinnings. Um, long before, you know, um, uh, critical race theory existed. Um, can you take us from the beginning, if you could, um, walk us through the core features or precepts uh, of the identity synthesis, but how did we get them in the first place? What is the intellectual heritage of the identity synthesis? Yeah, so, you know, we, we've mentioned a little bit, a lot of people on, on, on the right say oh, it's a form of cultural Marxism, so the way they think about it is, you take the basic precepts of Marxist uh, ideology, you take out economic categories like social class, you put in more identity-based categories like race, gender, and sexual orientation, and boom, you have, uh, uh, you know, quote-unquote wokeness, right? I think that that is wrong uh, in terms of what the nature of these beliefs is today, and it's certainly wrong in terms of where these ideas come from. And so in my book, my book has sort of four parts, right? In the first one, I really trace the intellectual origin of these ideas. In the second part, I say, all right, by 2010, these ideas were really influential in universities, but how did they go from that to being very influential in society as a whole? And the third part, I critique some of the main applications of these ideas in areas like uh, cultural appropriation and free speech and uh, uh, progressive separatism in education. And then finally, in the fourth part, I uh, defend a way of taking the injustices in our society seriously uh, while uh, sticking to the principles that are at the core of our constitution that have inspired the best kind of emancipatory movements in, in American history. And so, 
So, so in this first part, I, 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 was, I had an open mind. I thought, perhaps it is cultural Marxism. I don't know. Let me, let me read all of this stuff. And I'm trained as an intellectual historian originally. That's what I studied as an undergrad and, and, and for, for a lot of my, my, my graduate uh, uh, programs. Um, and, and I found that it's just wrong. But actually, the ideas start to originate with Michel Foucault in post-war Paris. This is a period where many of his contemporaries, like Jean-Paul Sartre, are Marxist. Um, he himself is a member of a communist party of France, which was basically uh, uh, steered by Moscow from 1950 to 1953, but then falls out of that ideology, comes to reject it in, in a very principled way. And he starts to say, look, all of these grand narratives that are structuring the basics of our political thought at the time um, are dubious. All of these attempts to try and make sense of the world in these grand sweeping ways. And one of those that he rejects is Marxism. The other that he rejects is liberalism, is the basic foundation of our liberal democracies, of our constitutional republics. Um, and so one key element in this thought is this deep skepticism about claims to neutral truths, claims to universal values. And that's something that is going to continue to influence this tradition in a deep way. The other key move that Foucault makes is to rethink uh, how we think about political power. So if you think about political power, or if you ask a high school civics teacher how to define political power, they're probably going to say something like, you know, it sort of emanates from the people in a complicated way in a democracy like the United States, but really it's sort of top down, right? It's the president or Congress passing a set of laws and then, you know, bureaucrats in the state and police sort of enforce it, right? Um, and Foucault says, no, 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 that's not really how power works. To understand power, we have to understand political discourses uh, and other kinds of discourses in society. What really sets the terms of how we can interact, who exercise power over whom, what the constraints are on our actions, is this podcast, right? Is the kind of conversation we're having, is the terms we're using. Um, and that becomes uh, really influential on the, on, on, on the later tradition as well. So, um, so at the origin of this, you have an ideology that is really skeptical of truth. It's actually very skeptical of identity categories, interestingly. Uh, Michel Foucault, in our terms, would be gay or homosexual. He rejected the label of homosexuality. He thought that that was too constraining of the variety of experiences people have. He thought, in a way, that there was an identity trap. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and he said, no, 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 when we think about power, we have to think about discourses. Uh, and the story that, that then happens is a story of a lot of people reacting to these ideas and making them their own in a way that Foucault may have objected to. I think if Foucault were alive today, he would actually view skeptically a lot of the applications of these ideas. One of the things you highlight, I think, very effectively is, uh, and we should talk a little bit about, you know, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw's contribution, um, but is the way in which the 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 origins that the original thinkers that that um, the, philosoph the philosophers might not even agree with some of the, the popularized versions of of what is now known as you know wokeism or the identity synthesis that they wouldn't even agree with where we have arrived. Um, can you can you continue tracing from Foucault to now to academia and how um, more modern academics picked up on this philosophy? And uh, and created really what is the um, I I like to think of it as a as a braid of different um, strands of thought that are now woven into what you call the identity synthesis. Which 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 are those? And assembly, what are their precepts? 
Yeah, so one of the striking things about Foucault's thought was that, as Noam Chomsky pointed out when he debated Foucault about 50 years ago, he was in, in a strange way quietest. He thought any one discourse is going to be as oppressive as the other. Perhaps we can create these brief moments of freedom by fighting against current discourses, but there's not going to be anything like systematic progress. And, and, and Chomsky in a podcast with me said, you know, he was the most amoral, not the most immoral, but the most amoral person I'd ever met. He was kind of shocked by this. And so in the next step, you have a set of post-colonial thinkers who uh, come from nations, many of which were, were newly liberated from, from, from being colonies, newly independent. They had to figure out how do we get, want to govern ourselves? What, what kind of country do we want to build? And they were understandably skeptical of many of the sort of Western ideologies that had ruled over them. So they're really attracted to Foucault's rejection of uh, grand narratives, to his emphasis on discourse, but, but they want to make it more politically useful because they have this practical political task to accomplish. And so uh, Edward Said is a really influential figure in this. He uh, uses Foucaultian categories. He praises Foucault. He's, Foucault is one of the few people he praises uh, in his work, uh, and in Orientalism in particular, um, uh, to, 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 to analyze the kind of uh, discourses that the West has historically used to orientalize the East, to sort of homogenize and uh, make appear inferior uh, countries in the in the global east, um, and but he then wants to go beyond that. He says, "I don't just want to show how this worked. I want to actually empower these countries to 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 fight back, to be more self confident, to 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 change the power dynamics uh, that we have." Um, uh, and so the point is not just to say, "Hey, here's the kind of ideas the West had that, that justified colonial rule in India and other places." Um, it is to invert those in order to allow these countries to fight back, to, to be confident, independent nations. And so that becomes a model for another theme of the identity synthesis, which is a sort of politicized form of discourse analysis, something that we started to take for granted. But you know, part of feminist politics is to fight for abortion rights, is to fight for some legislation for equal pay. But a lot of it today is critiquing and engaging with public debates and public discourse, right? To debate either to praise or perhaps to criticize the Barbie movie is part of feminist politics. And the same is true in all of these other kinds of areas of politics. That comes out of sort of Said's reading and appropriation of Foucault. And then in the next step, Gayatri Spivak, who is born and raised in Kolkata, in, in Bengal, in, in, in the east of India, you know, she's really somebody who is deeply influenced as well by postmodern post-structuralist thinkers. She comes to prominence by writing, by translating and introducing some key works in that tradition. And she buys their skepticism towards identity at a philosophical level. Uh, this, the, the critique of essentialist categories of identity that say there's something that defines uh, a homosexual that they all have in common, or something that defines somebody who's black that they all have in common. Like Foucault, she's very skeptical of these ideas. But whereas Foucault says, therefore, we should let people speak for themselves. So proletarians in France can speak for themselves. It's not our task to speak for them. Spivak says, well, but what about those people back in Kolkata, uh, what she calls the subaltern, the most oppressed around the world? You know, they may not have had the opportunity to go to school. They may have much fewer, much less social standing. They may have less political power than uh, you know, a worker in, in Paris. Uh, somebody does need to speak for them. And so she comes up with a slightly uh, uh, puzzling phrase that becomes really influential of strategic essentialism. The idea that even for philosophically speaking, these essentialist understandings of identity are wrong, for practical political purposes, 
we should embrace them in order to be able to speak with these groups, in order to allow them to fight back against uh, injustices. And that becomes really influential as a theme today, right? When we go back to why is it that, you know, the most fashionable pedagogical theories today say you should embrace race, that the top task of a good school is to get students to see themselves as racial beings, um, to, to adopt the self-conception of them. That is an embrace of strategic essentialism. And that ambivalence is still with us, right? You'll often hear activists saying, race is a social construct, something that I agree with, broadly speaking, but then they go on to speak as for race was really at the, at the core of everything and should be at the core of everything. That is an applied form of the kind of strategic essentialism that Spivak argued for. And so at what point did the more modern thinkers like Kimberly Crenshaw pick up on these ideas and and when does the arrival of critical race theory happen? Critical race theory is one of those things that I really want people to understand better because it's a really interesting and subtle uh, philosophy, but one that's very different from what everybody in the discourse is saying at the moment, right? So on the right, people sometimes say, if you want to teach kids in schools about the history of slavery in the United States, or if you recognize that there's still some racist structures in our society, that's critical race theory, right? Um, and then in part as a result, a lot of people in our kind of circles have started to say, well, you know, CRT is just, you know, critical race, being critical about the role that race plays in our society. Surely that's something that we should all be on board with and embrace. That is uh, a sort of reduction of what the theory is that the founders of this ideology would have rejected very, very explicitly and very, very loudly. Um, you know, the two key figures, there's a number of interesting figures in the tradition, but, but, but widely recognized, the two key figures are Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw. Uh, Derek Bell said that his core aim was to reject what he calls the defunct racial equality ideology of a civil rights movement. He mocked things like We Shall Overcome, the famous civil rights era song. Kimberly Crenshaw said that uh, the, the politics of Barack Obama was fundamentally at odds with the key tenets of critical race theory, right? So this is not just uh, wanting to be critical about race in our society, as we all should be. It is a much more specific uh, ideology that is self-consciously in opposition to figures like Martin Luther King or Barack Obama. So what what is their core ideas and where do they come from? Derek Bell is a super interesting figure, African-American uh, lawyer. Um, does heroic work in the 1960s, working for the NAACP uh, to uh, help desegregate schools and businesses and other institutions uh, throughout the American South and beyond. Um, but starts, as he's doing this work, to worry that these, and he explicitly acknowledges that these segregationist senators uh, uh, that, that, that oppose the civil rights movement may have had a point. What they're saying is, you know, these lawyers, they have this ideology of desegregation. They claim to be arguing for the clients, but they're really not. And Bell is saying, well, perhaps actually that is right. And he has some reasons to think that, right? And in some of these cases, he's arguing to desegregate a public school and the clients on whose behalf he's arguing have graduated by the time that they win the case, right? So they're not going to uh, gain anything from that. Sometimes these new schools are under-resourced and discriminate against black kids. So there's reasons... Uh, for this. He's, 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 he's a smart and thoughtful person. But the consequence he takes from that is really very extreme and, and was shocking to his colleagues at the time. I think it's still shocking. He basically says that perhaps Brown versus Board of Education was a mistake. 
But in some contexts, we should have aimed for schools that were separate but truly equal. Um, uh, that we should reject uh, the ideology of, of desegregation at any cost. And he blamed civil rights organizations at the time for refusing uh, to do that. Um, he also goes on to say that, uh, you know, any progress we've made in the past is illusory. And it was never motivated by trying to live up to our values um, uh, and, and, you know, uh, due to a lot of activism, due to a lot of pressure. Um, no, it was always in the interest of whites. Brown versus Board of Education, uh, he says in an article on what he calls the interest convergence dilemma, um, it was really just interested, motivated by whites who wanted to develop the Sun Belt and have good propaganda arguments against the Soviet Union and so on. There's nothing genuine about it. And so by the time he passed away in the early 2000s, he still believed in the thesis of what he calls the permanence of racism. He believed that America in 2000 was as racist as it had been in 1950 or in 1850. Um, and I think, again, here there's two really important themes that come from that, that you see in a lot of uh, these discussions today. You have a theme um, of rejecting universal solutions, of saying, no, actually, we should lean into, we should embrace these forms of separatism. Um, the only progress is going to come not from living up to the Constitution, but from getting rid of key parts of it. And secondly, this deep skepticism about the ability to make progress uh, on race, but also in other areas, right? Glad the, the gay rights organization has said, repeatedly that uh, the country is sort of as homophobic um, and as intolerant of sexual minorities today as it was 30 or so years ago when Ellen DeGeneres lost her TV show because she came out as lesbian, right? Um, uh, so, so this is a deep strain of, of thinking. And then the next step is Kimberly Crenshaw, who coins the term of intersectionality, which comes to be really influential. The way she talks about intersectionality originally is, I think, very sensible. She uh, describes uh, a factory in Michigan um, in which uh, uh, black men were no longer being discriminated against and white women were no longer being discriminated against, but black women were being discriminated against. And they couldn't get legal remedy against this form of discrimination because a lawyer at the time said, look, you know, women are a protected category under civil rights legislation and people who are black are a protected category. Um, but white women are being treated fine and black men are being treated fine as well, so you have no leg to stand on. Um, and so, so Crenshaw rightly says, well, there's intersectionality here where the discrimination faced by black women is not just a sum of a discrimination faced by white men and, uh, uh, by white women and black men, there's something that goes beyond that. Uh, that, I think, is an important insight. The way that intersectionality then gets read later on is uh, goes far beyond that. It, it, it leads into the idea first that um, actually, if I don't understand, you know, if you had a different intersection of identities than me, I might not be able to understand you. Um, so instead of trying to be in communication with each other, instead of putting in the work to really communicate, I just say, hey, I'm never going to understand you. I'll just defer to your political demands. Um, uh, you know, and that I think is a real uh, lack of civic friendship, right? I think we should listen to each other. We should do put in the work to understand each other. It's going to be hard, but this ideology says no. You 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 sort of give up on that. And then secondly, because all forms of oppression are interrelated, to be in good standing in a movement to fight against one form of oppression, you have to fight against all other forms of oppression as well. So if you want to be a member of a feminist organization, you also have to agree with its stance on Israel-Palestine. You also have to agree with its stance on trans issues. You also have to agree with its stance on 
uh, you know, social housing, right? Um, uh, and that, I think, raises the entry ticket to progressive politics in a way that often makes coalition building really, really difficult. So to zoom back out very quickly, the rejection of truth from Foucault, the politicized form of discourse analysis from Said, the embrace of uh, strategic essentialism in Spivak, uh, the emphasis on a uni- rejection of universalism, of integration, um, and uh, a belief in the permanence of bigotry, the permanence of discrimination in Bell, and then these two interpretations of intersectionality that uh, uh, you know come from uh, or, or are based on Crenshaw's work of we can't understand each other across these boundaries of race and religion and so on. Um, and uh, uh, you know, to be a good activist, you have to agree with all of the causes that activists might agree in. I think those are some of the core themes of what I would call the identity synthesis today. And that's why that's why I think that's a helpful term, the identity synthesis. It synthesizes these different ideas about identity in this new kind of mix that really helps to set our public culture today. Thanks for listening to part one of this series. Part two is available now, right next to it on the feed. And we always enjoy reading messages from you, but I'm especially curious what you thought of this episode. So feel free to drop me a line at podcast at politicology.com. And if you have two minutes and two thumbs, we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help even more people find the show. We'll see you in the next episode.